0: Well, hello. Thanks for coming back and uh, to give me a a, a little time to be sharing with you. In a moment, I'm going to share some of my story from Mormonism to Christianity. Uh, As I shared this morning, Watchman Fellowship is an apologetics ministry, meaning defend the faith. And this is a Defend the Faith Sunday. Uh, What we're talking about in Defending the Faith is being able to not only know what we believe, but know enough about what others believe that we can share the gospel, we can cross that bridge, and share the good news of Jesus Christ in a way their ears can understand. And much of that's going to be about building relationships with people, and being being a friend, and uh, being able to um, know how to communicate that gospel message. And one of the things that we do, and I want to invite each one of you uh, to consider being part of this, is we have an annual mission trip uh, to Utah, and we go to share the gospel. There's a, a huge outdoor pageant with tens of thousands of Latter-day Saints and Uh, I'd like you to think about maybe being a part of that. Uh, uh, Every summer we do that, and I got a little video clip, a little three-minute video to kind of show you what that's like and introduce you to the whole concept. So let's watch this clip. Hey, I just want to take a quick moment of your time and share about the excitement that we've had at Utah for our annual Utah mission trip. We had 24 Watchman Fellowship and Pantico Bible Church missionaries for training. Uh, We had two solid days of equipping them in Mormon history, theology, and how to share the gospel effectively uh, in a one-on-one situation with with Latter-day Saints, with Mormons. Uh, After the training, we had a day where we visited the historic sites in Salt Lake City, Temple Square, the Tabernacle. Uh, We also spent uh, a good portion of the afternoon with Sandra Tanner, one of the great great-great-granddaughters of Brigham Young, the Mormon prophet who has a fantastic ministry to reach Mormons. She's now a born-again Christian. She shared that testimony with us. We had a a great time. We've received reports now of 11 salvations that we know of, at least 11 salvations, uh, of people who trusted Christ as their savior, made professions of faith. During the outreach, 24 Watchmen missionaries, uh, coupled with probably a total of over 300 Christians from across the country, uh, who come together each year to witness and to share the gospel at the Manti pageant in uh, in Utah. Let me kind of show you what it was like. Let me take you to a video that I shot while we were in Utah and also some scenes from uh, witnessing on the streets of Manti. Uh, this will give you an idea of what it was like And and thanks again for your prayers. Hello, my name is James Walker and we're in Temple Square in uh, downtown Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, We are here this week to be on a mission trip. We have about uh, 24 uh, missionaries from five different states. We're sharing the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ with our Mormon uh, friends. Uh, We are here on Temple Square now taking tours, uh, getting involved in conversations about the gospel and hopefully not uh, doing something that will get us uh, kicked off of uh, temple grounds. But I want to say thank you for those of you who are praying for us at this time, uh, especially for tomorrow night and and for uh, Thursday night, for Friday nights, for Saturday night when we will will be in Manti. Uh, There are tens of thousands of Mormons from all over the world who will come for this giant uh, production, uh, outdoor production, a pageant, in which uh, they depict the, reenact the uh, Joseph Smith finding the golden plates and bringing forth the Book of Mormon uh, as well as other historical events from the book of mormon the bible uh, we will be mixing uh, with the people uh, trying to build relationships start conversations and hopefully be able to share the gospel of jesus christ but i want to say thank you for your support that helps make this happen and especially for your prayers god bless you again i'd love to see you guys think about being a part of that coming with us to utah we'll give you all the training and uh, we have people that go to actually do the training and the witnessing. We also have people that go to be the prayer partners. They're there to provide prayer support, and uh, we could certainly use your help on that. So as you're subscribed to our uh, profiles, if you go to our website at watchman.org, uh, we'll let you know when we get the new dates and uh, what that's like. We'd love to have you guys be a part of that with us. Uh, this evening, though, I'd like to share my story. Uh, my background as a Latter-day Saint and, and kind of take you on a journey, so to speak, from from Mormonism to Christianity. I I was born and raised a Latter-day Saint, a fourth generation. Uh, I was baptized at the age of eight years old, which is customary, traditional. Uh, I received the laying on of hands for what they call the gift of the Holy Ghost. I uh, later received the Aaronic Priesthood as a Mormon, and I served in the offices of deacon, teacher, and priest. I also was able to do baptism work for the dead in the Salt Lake City Temple in Utah. I'll explain later what all that means. But what I want you to know right up front, in all my experiences as a Latter-day Saint, I never had come to the place where I knew that I was right with God, that I knew that I had a relationship with God, that I would be in His presence forever. But one thing I did have as a Latter-day Saint are Mormons who loved me, or Christians that loved me when I was a Mormon, who loved me, were concerned about me, and took the time and effort to build that kind of bridge and to share the gospel in a way I could understand. And God used those people in my life, and I want to encourage you to be that kind of friend if you know someone who's a Latter-day Saint, who's a Mormon. And so I want to kind of tell you that story, what I was taught, what I believed as a Latter-day Saint, And uh, we do have a map for the journey, and pastor shared with you about that, uh, kind of a fill-in-the-blank chart. And uh, if you want to take that and take a look at that with me, we're going to go through that in just a moment. Uh, That's our map or chart or outline. We have some additional information and uh, resource list on the back. But before I share with you anything from the Book of Mormon or anything from the Prophet Joseph Smith, I, I would really like to kind of start with the Bible and uh, the word of God and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1 now now this morning we talked about the three things to look for uh, when it comes to recognizing uh, avoiding deception to recognize a counterfeit we talked about the three another's now does anybody remember from this morning it seems like three days ago can you remember from this morning what were the three things to look for the three another's another what another Jesus another spirit and another gospel very good that's real good now, that third one, another gospel, the Apostle Paul picks up on that same theme and, and kind of explains it deeper in the book of Galatians. So if you turn to Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes and he says, Galatians 1, verse 6, I am astonished, he, uh, he, he's shocked, he's just amazed, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There, there We find that again, this idea of a different gospel. And so initially, they were, they were following after, or attracted to at least, the true gospel, which Paul calls the grace of Christ. That's the true gospel, grace. But they were, they were diverted. They were uh, distracted from the true gospel, the grace gospel, to a different gospel, verse 7. Uh, not that there is another one. What he means by that is, um, you went away from the true gospel to a, the true good news to something that really wasn't good news at all. See, any other gospel besides the grace gospel is not good news, it's really bad news. And he says, uh, Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I think verse 8 is the key. He says, But even if we are an angel from heaven, it's interesting, by the way, the number of religions that began with the appearance of an angel. I'd love to come back with, sometime and share with you some of the parallels with Islam. In Islam, you have the prophet Muhammad. And he uh, goes out to the cave of Hira, the mountain near his home in Mecca. And he hears the voice of an angel, Jibreel, or, or Gabriel, who tells him, Quran, recite. And he comes out of the cave in a series of revelations with a very new scripture, the Quran. Well, with Joseph Smith, he hears the voice of an angel named Moroni... ...who appears in his bedroom and tells him about some sacred gold plates or golden tablets... ...that he's able to eventually translate into a new scripture. But notice what it says in in verse 8. It says, "...and even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." So what we're seeing here is there's only one true gospel... The grace gospel, remember grace means unmerited favor, undeserved kindness. And any other gospel actually leads to uh, destruction. So what I want to do is I want to share with you the gospel I was taught as a Latter-day Saint. And I want you to contrast that as I go through this gospel with you to to what you know the gospel is. and, And to simply answer the question for yourself, is this the same gospel, the grace of Christ, that we find in the New Testament? Or do we in fact have a different gospel now, we would sometimes call the gospel, as, as Latter-day Saints, as Mormons, you see it at the top of your, your chart, we would call it the law of eternal progression. That's a, a synonymous. It's another way of saying gospel. But the more common term we would use, we would call our gospel the restored gospel. And the reason we call it restored, the restored gospel is very significant. Uh, I was taught as a Latter-day Saint uh, that Joseph Smith discovered that true Christianity had ceased to exist shortly after the first century. And we learn that in the story known as the First Vision. Joseph Smith claimed that when he was 14 years old... Now, now he tells this story as an adult, but he, he, he remembers back what happened to him when he was 14 years old, and he didn't know what church to join. In fact, in the Mormon scriptures, Joseph Smith history... It even named some of the churches Joseph, was, Joseph Smith, the Mormon founder, was considering joining. He didn't know if he should be a Presbyterian, a Methodist, or a Baptist. And so he went out in the woods to pray uh, to a, a place that they now call the Sacred Grove. And he knelt down and prayed and act, basically asked God, which denomination should I be? Now, Joseph Smith claimed that much to his surprise, a bright light appeared in the Sacred Grove. And two beings, or personages, appeared to Joseph Smith, identifying themselves as God, the Eternal Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus warned Joseph, "...don't join any of the churches because all of them are false. All of their creeds are an abomination," the the Mormon scriptures say. Uh, "...all their, their professors of these religions are all corrupt. They preach for the commandments of God the doctrine of men." Uh, and he's to join none of them because there is no true Christianity on the earth. Joseph Smith later learns that true Christianity ceased to exist shortly after the death of the original apostles. So, from some for some uh, 1500, 1, 16, 1700 years, uh, there's been no true gospel on the earth. So, rather than joining any false church, Joseph Smith is tasked, and here's the key the key to restore the gospel. That happens 10 years later. The first vision was purported to happen in 1820. 10 years later, in 1830, Joseph Smith um, organizes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and restores the gospel. So as a, as a Mormon, put yourself in my shoes, I'm thinking not only is, uh, is our church a true church, a Christian church, it's, it's really the only true Christian church on the face of the earth. Why? We're the only ones with the restored gospel. Now, here's what we want to remember, though. When you restore something, it's supposed to look like the original. I mean, that's kind of what a restoration is, right? When you restore something, you're not making something new or different. You're making it exactly back the way it was. Let me give you an illustration. I I love classic cars. Guys, am I right? There's nothing like a 1957 Chevy. Am I right about that? So let's say I want to restore this 1957 Chevy. Why? Why? If you have to ask, you don't understand. So I'm going to spare no expense. I don't want it just partial. I want it to be a complete restoration. The upholstery, the finish. uh, I want to blueprint the engine. I I want this 57 Chevy, when I'm done, to look exactly restored like it rolled off the assembly line in 1957. So... Several years later, in a small fortune, I'm finished. and I'm so excited, and I want you to know about it, so I throw a big party and invite you over to see in my backyard my completely restored 1957 Chevy. And you say, James, we have to talk. That's not a restored 57 Chevy. That's a Winnebago. That's a motorhome. Now, you need to understand, you just hurt my feelings. Do you understand how hard I worked on this project and how how much money I spent and how much time it took? But the issue with a restoration is not how sincere you are or how hard you work or how much money you spent. The only question, one question, is it a restoration? Does it actually match? So that's what Galatians is talking about. Uh, It doesn't matter even if an angel brings you this gospel. If it doesn't match, if it's a different gospel, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's not good news. It's bad news. So, we want to do that comparison and go through the chart. And if you look on your outline, your, your map, you'll see that the Mormon gospel basically answers three very important questions. And, and I would say these are actually very good questions. I, like, I love the questions, not so much the answers, but the questions I think are very good questions. And uh, the questions are at the top of the page, uh, the question, Where do we come from? Then, in the white box right there in the middle, we have question number two, Why are we here? And, the bottom and the, the yellow box towards the bottom in the middle, where are we going? Where did we come from? Was there life before we came to earth? Now, on the first question, I'm going to have to ask you to work with me on this. Because I need you to suspend your disbelief for a moment. I'm going to say some things that will sound different to you. We're going to, you know, think a little bit outside the box. Okay, way outside the box. But here's my question, question one. Where did you come from? Could you have lived somewhere else before you came to live on planet Earth? Well, question one has an answer, and I'm trying to help you out. Question one is actually in a very big arrow. That's your clue. I'm pointing to the answer for you. Follow the map. Upper left-hand corner, I was taught, where did we come from? That far away in a distant part of the universe there's a giant star, and the name of that star is called Kolob. If you're taking notes, filling in the blanks, that's K-O-L-O-B. This star, I was told, is a thousand times larger than the sun in our solar system, and this is talked about in the Mormon scriptures. One One of their scriptures is called the Pearl of Great Price, and in that scripture, there's a book called the Book of Abraham, and there's some Egyptian diagrams and Explanations. It is talking about this star called Kolob, K-O-L-O-B, and a thousand times larger than our sun. I was told, and uh, but but the size of the sun is not what makes it important. This star is is unique because this star is nearest to the celestial residence of our heavenly Father. God lives near this star called Kolob, and I was told that God's name is Elohim, Elohim. Now, later on, when I, after I became a Christian and I took Greek and Hebrew, I discovered that Elohim is actually a Hebrew word, the Hebrew vocabulary word for God or gods. Uh, but as a Latter-day Saint, I, was, I, I thought this is no mere vocabulary word. This is the personal name of our Father in Heaven, our Heavenly Father, Elohim, who lives uh, near, the first, uh, near this place called Kolob. Um, in, in the, he lives there, Elohim does, in a place called the First Estate, or another name for it is the uh, pre-existence. Now, we have this pictured as a world. You would assume is near the sun. It would be some kind of world or, or, or planet or something near the Star Kolob. Nearest the Star Kolob is what the Mormon scriptures t- tell us. And our Heavenly Father lives there. And Heavenly Father lives there along with Heavenly Mother. Now, I, I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that God is married. So you have heavenly father, but you also have his wife, heavenly mother. In a sense, you've got both God and, and Mrs. God. Not I, I had some people ask me about that uh, uh, after my message this morning, and a couple of questions came up, and where does this idea come from that God is married? And, you know, and yeah, I, I, they would often, I often had the question, uh, in the Bible, this isn't in the Bible, in the Bible, God's not married. And that's true. In fact, technically in the Bible, God's not even dating anybody. So where does this idea come from? Well, one of the, I think, classic flaws that you see in this, 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 uh, uh, this, this um, movement, in this theology, is that Mormonism teaches that the Bible is the Word of God, but that the Bible has not been translated correctly. So as a Latter-day Saint, we have not just the Bible, which has its problems, But God loved us so much, he gave us additional scriptures. One of them is called the Book of Mormon. Another is called the Doctrine and Covenants. And the other I've already mentioned is the Pearl of Great Price. But in addition to these scriptures, there's also living apostles and prophets to guide the people of God. So it'd be like having the Apostle Paul alive today, living in Salt Lake City, where theoretically you could actually... Get an answer to your Bible question if you can call the secretary and leave a message and he could get back with you. You have apostles like Paul alive today, 12 of them. But you also have prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. A prophet of the church, his name today is Thomas S. Monson, who's the prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so um, they they have these doctrines, these ideas that, that, that there's a heavenly father and there's also a heavenly mother. And I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that God and His wife, basically, they have children just like human parents have children. Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother uh, have spirit children. They procreate children, and uh, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother uh, have a lot of children—an um, extremely large family. You know, not you know millions. Actually, billions. Now, we're striking at the very heart right now of question number one. Do you remember what was question one? Yeah, where did we come from? I was taught as a Mormon that all of us in the building this, this afternoon, not just us, everyone who's alive on the earth today, not just us, everyone who ever has been born in the past or will be born in the future, where did we come from? We came from our first estate. We came uh, from the presence of our heavenly parents. We are spirit children of these deities. We are these children. We looked a lot like we do right now before we came to earth, but we had spirit bodies rather than tangible bodies of flesh and bone. If I was alive today, uh, if I was a Mormon today and talking about the life that we lived before we were born on this earth, give you an example of that, uh, I might give you this illustration. Uh, Just raise your hand if you've ever had this happen. Have you ever met someone that was uncanny, it was kind of like, as soon as you met them, it's like you had known them your entire life. Raise your hand if you've ever... See, you probably knew that person here on the planet near the star Kolob. Okay, she's not convinced. But could you see how some of this might have a familiar ring to it, or some of this might sound, well, that sounds deja vu, it sounds maybe plausible or reasonable. But the question should not be this this evening, is this plausible or reasonable? The question is, is this biblical? Is this the same gospel that Paul's preaching, that the apostles are preaching in the New Testament, or do we have actually a different gospel? Now, I was taught that it was determined we would need a Savior, and uh, two of our older brothers both offered to be the Savior of mankind. I mentioned this morning that Jesus desired to be the Savior of the world, but so did his spirit brother named Lucifer. I was taught that Jesus and Lucifer... are are brothers, but not just those two. All of us are brothers and sisters because we have the same parents in the pre-existence. Now, Lucifer wanted to, to require, mandate, that everyone would follow the will of God and all would be saved. But Jesus, on the other hand, wanted to follow Heavenly Father's wishes and give everyone free agency or agency, and give, them, uh, the, give us all the opportunity to choose whether we decide to follow God or not, or decide to sin or not. And that was according to what Heavenly Father's desire was. So Jesus was given the opportunity to be our, the Savior of the world, not Lucifer. When Lucifer was not chosen to be Savior, he becomes angry, rebels, and that's the fall of Satan. That's how the, that Lucifer became the devil. And he was able to convince about a third of us to join with him, and those of our brothers and sisters who joined with him became the demons. There's a lot more to that story, but if I keep going anymore, I won't be able to get to the second question. We answer question number one, where do we come from? Uh, question number two, why are we here? Well, if you look on your chart, we're in the bottom left-hand corner. We're on earth, which is also, if you're filling in the blank, uh, is known as the second estate. The second estate. By the way, one year we published a map similar to this in one of our magazines. And the woman who did the artwork for us, she put an X here on the earth and put, you are here. You ever get lost at the mall? If I've already lost some of you, you're on earth, which is also the second estate. I don't want to lose you. Some of you are still lost. But you're on earth. But the question is not where are you, but why are you? And this is a more important question than it appears. Because I was taught as a Latter-day Saint that we were all given a choice. Do you want to stay with God in heaven, in, in the pre-existence, or do you want to come to earth and risk it all? Now, when you come to earth, it comes at great risk because potentially you could lose everything. Why would you ever want to leave the presence of God and have the, the, even the slightest potential that you could lose it all? What we're going to see in a little bit is that if you're successful, according to the Mormon gospel, the upside is virtual not virtually, it is infinite. If you're successfully able to do what you're required to do. So what is that? That's question number two, why, uh, why are we here? Now, I have about maybe two or three dozen requirements of what you have to do In order to successfully accomplish your mission here on earth in the second estate Uh, On your chart, I've reduced it down to nine Now I'm thinking, I don't even have time to give you all nine of them So I'm going to reduce it down to just five And none of the rest will be on your test So don't worry about being tested on that Know the five summarized reasons of why we're here Uh, What are we here for? Number one, we are here to receive a body Now we already had a spirit body, but you cannot progress with a spirit body in the pre-existence. You must gain a physical, tangible body. And that, that's what you get when you come to the second stage. Now, how many of you kind of get a feel where we are? How many of you think you may have already accomplished step one? Raise your hand if you think you may have already... Oh, half of us... Um, I'm going to give everybody credit for that one. You put mark, Check that off. You, mission accomplished. You, were able to comp- you got a body. That's step one, get a body. But also, number two, you uh, must be able to have faith in Christ. Now, by that I mean there's a problem that we have is that we have sin. And the Mormons recognize that, and they know that no sin can be in the presence of God. So in order to overcome the sin, you must go through what they would call the first principles and ordinances of the gospel— and that that would include um, uh, repentance. It would also include faith in Christ. You must have faith in Christ. Now, this is something we would certainly agree with our Latter-day Saint neighbors. That Don't we, all, don't we agree with them that, that the gospel in, uh, involves having faith in Christ, right? But before we say that that's a total agreement, remember, we have to ask the question, which Christ? Is it the same Christ? Are we talking about the same Jesus? Now, I, I don't... I could talk the whole night just on this one topic. So let me just say, I'm convinced that the Jesus I believed in as a Latter Day Saint is not the Jesus I believe in today. Many differences. I, I don't. I believe that Jesus today. I believe is the only begotten Son of God, not one of millions or billions of begotten children of God. Uh, as a Latter Day Saint, I believe that Jesus. Um, uh, I believed as a Latter Day Saint that Jesus after his resurrection came to America to preach the gospel to the Native Americans. Uh, I don't believe that, that, that my Jesus did that today. Uh, in, in, as a Mormon, I was taught that the atonement took place not on the cross. You will never find a cross on any Latter-day Saint building. Uh, the, the atonement takes place instead at the Garden of Gethsemane, not at Calvary, but at Gethsemane, where Christ sweated great drops like blood. That agony was the atonement, or the focus at least, of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Um, I was taught that Jesus, the early Mormon apostles taught, uh, uh, Orson Pratt, Orson Hyde, other of the early Mormon apostles taught that Jesus himself was married. That he had married uh, Mary, her sister Martha, Mary Magdalene, were three of the wives of Jesus. Uh, That's something that even most Mormons today don't believe, even though it was clearly taught uh, by several of their apostles. So there's many differences between what I believe now is who Jesus is and what I was taught as a Latter-day Saint. But I, this, this, this afternoon, I don't, I don't want you to take my word for it. I, let me take you to the Mormon leader himself. This is the prophet, seer, revelator, president of the Mormon Church. And, and not long ago, this was recent, maybe about 10 or 12 years ago. This is President Gordon B. Hinckley. Died about 10 or, 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, prophet, seer, revelator, head of the church. He said this. In bearing testimony of Jesus Christ, this is from their LDS Church News, President Hinckley spoke of those outside the church who say, Latter-day Saints do not believe in the traditional Christ. Listen to his answer. No, I don't. The traditional Christ of whom they speak is not the Christ of whom I speak. So if you read his whole article, he's making the case that we have the wrong Jesus. And that the real Jesus was the one that, that Joseph Smith encountered in his first vision. And one of the things that Joseph Smith learned in the first vision is that all the Christian creeds were an abomination in God's sight. Of course, what do the Christian creeds teach us? What we believe about Jesus is one of the things in the creeds. So he's arguing we have the wrong Jesus and they have the right Jesus. But at least I, I appreciate the fact he realizes we're talking about two different Jesuses here. And he makes that, uh, makes that crystal clear. Now, three in your outline, after faith in Christ, repentance, faith in Christ, you must be baptized and receive the Holy Ghost. But the baptism, in order to be valid, must be by one having the proper authority, meaning your baptism must be by a Mormon holding the priesthood. Any other baptism does does not help save you. Any other baptism is uh, unofficial, so you have to be baptized by one having the priesthood authority Uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Holy Ghost also must be received by the laying on of hands, by someone having the power and authority to bestow the priesthood upon you, meaning a Mormon elder. Uh, You must also um, obey all the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Obey the laws of the gospel. This this really, I think, clearly kind of shows the difference between what we teach as the gospel and what the Latter-day Saints teach. As a Mormon, I was taught that there is no blessing that we receive from God, including forgiveness of sin. Every possible blessing that comes from God is predicated upon our obedience to the corresponding principle. If you want something from God, you learn the law that goes with it, and you obey that law. If you don't obey the law, there's no blessing from God. And we find this even when it comes to forgiveness of sin and salvation. I'm, I'm taking this from a number of sources, the Book of Mormon and other places, but let me just quote to you from the articles of faith written by the prophet Joseph Smith himself. I, every Mormon in, um, in, in uh, elementary school learns the, the 13 articles of faith. And one of them, uh, Article 3, says this, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. So according to Joseph Smith, how are we saved? By our obedience to the laws. Now, let me just say, that's not what we believe the gospel is. We don't believe that we're saved by our obedience uh, for for a number of reasons. One of which is we're not very obedient. Um, Let me talk about the laws for just a moment. Uh, does anybody know how many laws are there just in the Bible? Not talking about the Book of Mormon or the Doctrine and Covenants. How many just the Old Testament? How many laws are there? Anybody know? Six hundred thirteen. Six hundred thirteen laws. How many of you know them all? Okay, let's, let's forget the six hundred thirteen. How many of you know the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. We'll make it easy. Come on now. Uh, okay, raise your hand if you could give me eight of the ten. If you can give me eight of the Ten Commandments, I'll give you full credit. Okay, that's that's better. Now, think about just the Big Ten Laws. How many of us can say that we've kept all the Ten Commandments? One of the Ten Commandments, students, honor your father and mother. Some days. Uh, One of the commandments, Jesus said, you know if you break it in your mind, you break it in your heart, you've already broken it. Now, it's not that the laws are bad. Listen, the the laws are beautiful, glorious because the laws reflect the righteousness and holiness of the God we believe in. But we don't believe that we're saved by laws. We, we are not saved by laws at all. We are saved by a Savior, not by the laws. And so I want you to contrast what Joseph Smith said of how we're, our sins are forgiven versus what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 3. He says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. So how many people get right with God by law keeping according to Paul? What's the number we're looking for? Less than 10. Zero. Nobody gets right with God that way. He goes on to say, "Uh, through the law we become conscious of sin. See, and that's the value of the law. I'm not against the law. I, I, I love the law of God, but I realize the purpose of it. The law is not to make us right with God, but to show us that we need to be made right with God. I compare it to this, if, if you've ever had that thing where you, an, an accident where you slip and you fall, and it, how many of you have ever experienced a broken bone? Raise your hand if you've ever experienced a broken bone. It's about half of us. You know, the pain, you know, it, it wasn't that big of a fall, but about one o'clock in the morning, you, it, it hurts worse and worse. You can't stand it anymore. So what do you do? You go to the ER, right? And after you waited there about four hours, they take you back, right? And they finally take an x-ray. How many of you have had an x-ray before, you know? And then they bring, you, they bring it out later, and the, and the doctor puts it up there and turns on the little light, and you see that little tiny line. How can that one tiny line be causing all this little pain? It's a fracture. But at least you know what's wrong. So you tell the doctor, Do, Doc, thanks. Now, how many more x-rays until I'm healed? How many more x-rays until, I, until I'm out of pain? Does anybody know the answer to that question? X-rays don't help you. X-rays can't heal you. X-rays can't stop the pain. The purpose of an X-ray is not to heal you, but to show you that you're broken. That's the purpose. The purpose of a law is not to be your Savior, but to show you that you need one. We're saved not by obedience to laws. We're saved by a Savior who was obedient to those laws and died in our place, our substitute, who gives us eternal life based on what He did as a free gift by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. Paul summarized or concluded the matter in verse 28 by saying, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the laws. So that the, it, we're seeing the contrast between a gospel of uh, you performing and earning it through your good works and obedience versus realizing that you're not obedient and that you need a Savior. This is why we say Jesus is a Savior, not me, not you. We have a Savior but we're not the Savior. Well, back to our list. Number five, finally at the bottom, to receive a temple endowments. Now, I'm not going to go into detail. I do recognize that we may have some Latter-day Saint guests with us. And if you are a LDS, I want to say thank you for being here. You are a very special guest. I would love to meet with you afterwards and take any kind of feedback. I'm open to criticism. I'd love to meet you and talk with you and hear what you have to say. And I know this is a really, really touchy area. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about specifically this evening what happens in the temple. I'll only say this much generically. The temple is extremely important because there are certain ordinances that take place in a temple that can only happen in a temple. No other building, no other public place has to happen in the temple. There's only about 150, 100 less than 160 temples in the entire world. Uh, the one for this area, there is one here in Oklahoma City, actually. Did you know that that, uh, that temple is off limits to the general public? No Gentile, they mean non-Mormon, is allowed to ever go inside the temple once it's dedicated. But interestingly, even most Mormons never are able to go inside the temple. They can go to the Mormon church, the ward, the stake center. They can go there, but not to the temple. You must first, to get inside this temple for these ordinances for the temple endowment, you must first be established that you are temple worthy. Now that involves interviews, whereas a faithful Latter-day Saint, you get an interview first with your bishop, which is like kind of like your pastor would be in a Christian church. And if you successfully pass that interview, you get the second interview with his supervisor, the stake president. And they're going to ask you some very direct questions. And they're going to establish, are you worthy to go in that building? Are you temple worthy? Are you worthy? Are you not worthy? And they're going to ask you, let me just give you a feel for it. um, Let me just do this, if I can, if it's okay with pastor. I'm just going to be your bishop, if I can. And I'll just do it as a group, and we'll just take you through part of the temple interview. And I'm going to ask you to do not lie, be honest with me. And I'm going to find out who's worthy. So they will always, almost always, start with the um, what they would call the word of wisdom questions. So you just raise your hand. Uh, How many of you raise your hand if you drink like coffee or tea? Coffee or tea? Raise your hand. Coffee or tea? Okay, you're all disqualified. You don't even get to question number two. Either beverage, coffee or tea, disqualifies you from going into the temple. They're going to ask you if you if you uh, use tobacco products. Uh, do you, uh, do you um, partake in alcoholic beverages? They're going to ask you what they call the word of wisdom questions. They're going to ask you uh, if you have any associations with or sympathies for apostates or apostate organizations. If you're good friends with James Walker, this could affect whether or not you're temple worthy. Uh, they're going to ask you. Now, they they're always will ask this question. This is always asked. But I'm going to ask you, don't raise your hand on this one. But they're going to ask you the question. Are you ready? Question, have you given 10% of your income to the church? Now, if you answer no, it's not like the end of the world. They'll just simply ask you the follow-up question. Would you like to make a settlement at this time? Now, if you answer no to that question, it is the end of the line, spiritually. There's no way in the temple without writing that check to catch up on the tithing. They can determine how far back you have to go, perhaps. But you must be full 10% giver to the church or you're not allowed uh, into the temple. Now, now, please don't misunderstand me. I, I believe in supporting my church financially with offerings, tithes, offerings. It's a, a good thing. But I realize my salvation is not tied to giving. In Mormonism, it is. Because you can't go in the temple, which affects where you're going to spend eternity unless you... Uh, are a full 10% giver to the church. Um, Now, if you do pass through, and there's many other questions, but if you get all the questions affirmative, you're declared at that point worthy. And and By the way, this kind of shows the opposite here. The bishop's asking you, are you worthy? Yes, bishop, stake president. Are you worthy in the area of tithing? Yes, I'm worthy. Are you worthy in the area of tobacco products? I'm worthy. Are you worthy in the area of, of morality? of your thought life, they're, they're asking you these questions. When it comes to Christianity, it's the exact opposite. It's, Christianity starts when you realize, I'm not worthy. This is why I need the savior. I need, I'm need i not worthy, I need that help. So if you're determined worthy by your bishop and stake president, you're given a card called a temple recommend, which allows you access into the temple. Uh, I think they're valid for 24 months, but they can be revoked if you are, become unworthy during that period. Now. That gets you access, and again, I'm not going to go through details. If you're curious about this, I'll be honest with you, you can go on YouTube, and uh, there's some remarkable hidden camera, uh, actual footage taken inside the temple, and that's enough that you can find it if you're looking for that kind of thing. Let me just say that there are, generically speaking, some, I'll just mention two of them, Two things that can only happen in a temple. One of them is baptism for the dead, has to happen in now regular baptism for the living can take place in any water deep enough for immersion, but for the dead must be done in one of the 160 temples around the world. The other is to be married to your spouse for time and all eternity. If you're married outside the temple, whether you're a Gentile or a, or a Latter-day Saint, that that marriage is not for eternity. It's a marriage. Uh, it only until death. How many of you are married and um, raise your hand if you're married? How many of you? Okay. You remember in the ceremony where the minister at some point says something like, Till death do you part? How many of you remember that? That's okay. If I could tell you a way you could be married, not till death, but actually for all eternity, how many of you would be interested in that? If you, if, uh, okay, come on now. <laughs> come on. Okay, strike that question from the record. Um, let me rephrase. One of the real benefits that I saw as a Latter-day Saint, we're the only church that could do this. We had a way of making a marriage last beyond the grave. But to make it happen, it has to take place in the temple. So uh, the details you, you know, are really unimportant. The idea is being temple worthy is an important part of the Mormon theology. Uh, now. Let me talk about the final question, where are we going? After death, I was taught, where are we going? When we die, everybody goes to one of two places, but it's not heaven and it's not hell. You go immediately upon death to either a place called paradise or another place called spirit prison. Paradise or spirit prison. Now, as the names imply, uh, you, you don't want to go to the spirit prison. You prefer to go to paradise, right? But here's the catch. Uh, Today, practically speaking, only worthy Latter-day Saints can go to paradise. So everyone else is going to go where? Spirit prison. That would be everybody, um, atheists, Baptists, bad Mormons. All of them are going to go to spirit prison. But if you die and go to spirit prison, all is not lost. There's still another way. there's There's a ray of hope. Because if you died and went to spirit prison and never had an opportunity to hear the restored gospel. Now, let me say this. This is a really important question for the Mormons. Because let me say, ask you this way. If you lived and died in the 1500s, could you have heard this message? Or the 1400s or the, even the 1700s? If you weren't alive, in, if you didn't live long enough to see 1830, there was no way... Uh, that you could have heard this message because it was lost for 1,700, 1,800 years until Joseph Smith restores it in the year 1830. But even after 1830, you know, you could live in a place where the Mormon missionaries have never knocked on your door to share this message with you. What about those people? Or, or how about these people? Maybe the Mormon missionaries did knock on your door, but you pretended that no one was home. Now, so you've not heard this, so you had no chance that so you die and go to spirit prison. The Mormon church teaches everybody gets at least one chance. Even after you're dead, if you haven't already had a chance, you get at least one chance. They teach that Mormon missionaries from paradise can actually come down and visit you in spirit prison. Now, I've had people ask me, I really don't know how this I don't I don't think it involves bicycles or how this works, but somehow the Mormon missionaries can come down and visit you in spirit prison, share the gospel with you there, the restored gospel. You can accept the Mormon gospel in spirit prison if you never had a chance in this life. He said, great, I can go to paradise. Not so quickly. You still have the requirements, and one of them is baptism. He said, well, but James, I was baptized in the Baptist church. Invalid. You have to be baptized by one having the Mormon authority, the priesthood authority. He said, well, how can a guy be baptized when he's already dead? Ah, this is the doctrine of baptism for the dead. This is what happens in the temple. The Mormon church uh, maintains, very impressive, the world's largest genealogical library. The names of literally millions and millions and millions of dead people, all cataloged. uh, Their marital status... uh, Background, birth and, when available, birth and death dates. Um, a, a very impressive genealogical library. In fact, Ancestry.com. You ever heard of that website? Based on that database. And uh, much of it very accurate. Uh, maybe uh, uh, the, the vast majority of it seems to be very accurate. And those names for the Mormons are sent electronically to the 140 temples around the world. And in those temples, they do, among other things, baptism for those dead people. This is what I did in the Salt Lake City Temple in Utah. I was dressed in total white from head to toe. I was ushered into a beautiful room. In the center of the room, there's this gold baptismal font supported by 12 golden oxen. I remember walking down those steps into the Salt Lake Temple baptistry to be baptized, but I wasn't being baptized for James Walker. I had already been baptized in, in the regular Mormon church. This was not baptism for the living, this is baptism for the dead. And so I stepped down to the waters of baptism and the officiators asked for for whom is this ordinance uh, to be undertaken... And if I remember correctly, I was to be baptized, first of all, for a man named Frederick Jones. Frederick Jones. And he said, I baptize you, James Walker, for and on behalf of Frederick Jones, who is dead. He immersed me in the water and brought me up. And I was convinced had Frederick Jones, uh, this dead man I never knew, if he had received the Mormon gospel in spirit prison and accepted it, he then could immediately go to paradise. I had just opened the door for him by my baptism. Now, had Frederick Jones not accepted the Mormon gospel in spirit prison, then my baptism did no good for him. But see, the Latter-day Saints don't know, they don't know who accepts and who don't. So they get baptized for every dead person. They've gotten baptism for the dead. They can even tell you what temple it was done in and the date it was done. They've done baptism for the dead for Adolf Hitler, uh, for um, uh, all the Baptist leaders, the, the, uh, the Reformers, Martin Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, uh, all the Catholic popes have been baptized for the dead. Um, I- any relative you have, if you if you have a relative who's been passed away for either two, two years or longer, they've already done it. and You can actually go to the genealogy center and find out what temple and what was the date. They do it without your permission. And so they do the baptism for the dead. But they not only do baptism for the dead, they do marriage for the dead. Living Mormon couples will take on the name of deceased couples and go through the marriage ceremony the ordinance, the, um, the, what they call the sealing ceremony, for and on behalf of this dead couple. N- over 90% of the works that take place in the Mormon temple are these works for the dead. It's not worship services like on Sunday. In fact, the temples are actually closed on Sunday. The idea is you're helping to save uh, those who are dead. But even if you make it to paradise after the baptism for the dead, it's not over because after the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, uh, eventually, virtually everyone, uh, paradise and spirit prison will be emptied. And virtually everyone is going to end up in one of three different degrees of glory. Three different heavens. Uh, the bottom kingdom is known as the telestial kingdom. Uh, telestial, the symbol is the star. Like the dim twinkle of a of a tiny starlight, this heaven, I was told, is a place of glory, majesty, um, beauty, Uh, just everything you could ever hope heaven to be. But as a Mormon, I had no desire to go to the telestial kingdom. In fact, if I went to that heaven, I would be a failure because there's a higher heaven you could uh, aspire to known as the terrestrial kingdom. This is represented by a brighter light, the light of the moon. And this is a more glorious, more beautiful, closer to the presence of God, heaven, the terrestrial kingdom. But as you can already imagine, I didn't want to go there either. I wanted to go to the celestial kingdom, represented by the brightest light of all, the light of the sun. This is the place where Heavenly Father now dwells. This is where I wanted to be, the celestial kingdom. Um, Now, I'm going to kind of simplify this for you. Who goes where? And again, this is, if you want to read some of the documents, we have some web, on our website, we have articles on this that go into depth. Let me just say, I'm very, speaking very generically, just kind of su- summarizing. It basically works this way. Only good Latter-day Saints go to the celestial kingdom, or those who uh, accept the restored gospel in spirit prison and wait for the works to be done vicariously, baptism for the dead and marriage for the dead. They too can, th- can also uh, aspire for the celestial kingdom. The bottom kingdom, this is, this is interesting, The bottom heaven is reserved for wicked people. If you're a murderer, you hate God, atheist, you don't believe anything, you go to the bottom heaven, which is a place of glory and honor and majesty. The middle heaven, the terrestrial kingdom, I had one Mormon say, well, that's for good Christians and bad Mormons. He was joking. It's, It's really a place for spiritual people to go who are not worthy Latter-day Saints. So if you're an observant Jew, if you're a devout Muslim, if you're a decent Baptist, you could possibly go to that middle heaven, the terrestrial kingdom, but you cannot go to the celestial, only Latter-day Saints. And even the celestial, look closely at your chart, even the celestial kingdom is divided into three categories. In order to make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, you must not only be a worthy, obedient Latter-day Saint obeying all the laws and orders of the gospel, you must also be married, and your spouse also must be worthy. This is a religion that your salvation is based not just on you, but your spouse. Um, how many of you, if anybody's single, raise your hand if you're not married. Raise your hand. Um, you need to think about this. Is there anybody you like? Because you need to get this straight as quick as possible, because your eternal salvation depends on, to, to part of this depends on your marital status. Maybe this is one reason that the early Mormon apostles like Orson Hyde talked about Jesus being married because how could he obey all righteousness when he has left out this important ordinance of celestial marriage? So you have to be married, but if you're married and you're obedient to all the laws and orders of the, ordinances of the gospel, if you make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, it still doesn't end. Now, what I'm about to tell you ties it all together. It's one of the most important crowning doctrines of the church, and by while we talked about it as Latter-day Saints, you will never see it on their TV commercials, but you cannot understand the restored gospel without understanding this final piece. If you're obedient and worthy, if you make it to the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, and you're married, and your spouse is equally worthy, remember question number one formed an arrow from the upper right-hand part of your chart to the upper left-hand part of your chart? I was taught... If I made it the celestial kingdom, the highest degree, my wife and I then would be given our own earth somewhere. And I would be the heavenly father of that earth, and my, mo- my wife would be the heavenly mother of that earth, and we would start having spirit children, theoretically billions of them, and we would populate that earth. Now, the Mormons will say it this way, families are forever. And the whole idea is that um, it, it, I could become a God over that world in the same way that our God became the God over our world. In fact, fascinatingly, the whole celestial uh, law of eternal progression works in reverse. It works in reverse. Our Heavenly Father, before He was our God, He Himself attained celestial exaltation in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom with His wife. And But before that, our Heavenly Father used to be a man on some other earth somewhere, some other world. Of course, he was obedient to eternal principles. And because of his obedience and faith, he was able to achieve this. But his God also, that he worshipped, also used to be a man who had a God over him who was once a man. And this has a real big problem of where did the first God come from? There's no real good Mormon answer for that question. It's a problem called eternal regression. You can't have a cause and effect that goes on for all eternity One Mormon prophet, Lorenzo Snow, summarized the entire Mormon gospel with this famous couplet I learned as a child. And uh, he said it this way, Lorenzo Snow. He said, As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Our God, before he was God, he was once a man. We have the potential also. We too can become gods and goddesses if we obey, uh, obey worthy to these gospel principles. Now, this is what I was taught as a Latter-day Saint. Let me just ask you, is this the same gospel of grace that we find in the New Testament? Or do we have a different vehicle, a different gospel, a different, a different message? I, I do believe it's very, very different. Now, if, when I was a Latter-day Saint, I was fortunate to have Christian friends who cared, who built the bridge, who asked the questions. And I don't have time uh, to go through all the stories and all the people... Uh, uh, that God used helping me to make that transition from Mormonism to Christianity. Let me just tell you about one, though. Let me talk about my friend, Tom. I had a friend in seventh grade. Students, let me tell you, you don't realize as a student that you still, you have friends, you have people that you know that you can have a huge influence on. I had a friend named Tom. This is way back in seventh grade. And my friend Tom asked me, he's a Christian. He said, James, what church do you go to? I said, well, Tom, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He thought that was great. Until a few days later, he came back, he said, James, you're a Mormon. I said, Tom, that's like another name. We have this another name for our church. I'll never forget, Tom said, um, James, I think you believe in a different God than we do. I said, oh, no, Tom, you misunderstand. We believe in God and Jesus and, and the Bible just like you do. We just have additional information like the Book of Mormon. Tom said, uh, no, James, actually, I looked you up in the encyclopedia. Now, for the encyclopedia for students, it was like like before Wikipedia, they had these things called encyclopedias, kind of same idea. I said, we're in the encyclopedia. What does it say? He said, well, it says your church teaches that God, before he was God, he was once a man, and that you can become a God also one day. I said, well, no, 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 Tom, what we, what, what we believe is that you become a God, but only if you're worthy, only if you're obedient. Well, we believe that the same as your church. See, I thought everybody believed that. And my friend Tom said, no, James, see, we believe there's only one true God. I said, well, yeah, one God. We believe one God for our earth, our world, but you know there's other worlds and other gods out there. He said, no, James, we believe there's only one true God. Every other God's a false god. So, Tom, who told you that? Where did you hear that before? Never heard that before. And here's a seventh grader. You know what he said? Well, James, it's in the Bible. Let me show you. So I remember like yesterday, his grandmother's porch. It was like a big old family Bible. He opens up Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, and reads me this passage. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. And he said, James, if there's no God before, and before God, and there's going to be no God after God, how could God have once been a man? How can you ever become a God? I didn't know the answer to that question. I had never thought about that verse before. I'm thinking, maybe that's one of the mistakes in the Bible. That's what I thought at the time. But you know, the Word of God is powerful, even if you don't believe it. There, I st- I you, all these years later, I still remember that. I didn't become a Christian that day, or that year, or for years. But God, that was the first seed that was planted, though. I still remember that. Uh, There were other things I came to realize that even on my best day, I was a sinner, and I wasn't worthy, and I struggled with that. The idea of, am I saved through what I do, or am I saved through what Christ did? I struggled with that. And I came to the place when I was 21 years old, that I realized there was only one true God. And I realized I was a sinner. And that, that I could never save myself. Even on my best day, I, I, I failed so many different ways. I needed help. I needed a Savior. And I put my faith and trust in Christ, what my Christian friends had tried to tell me for years. I put my faith and trust in Christ. But looking back on my whole journey from Mormonism to Christianity, it really started with my friend Tom. Now, Tom would not have ever known this story. See, I lost track of Tom shortly after the ninth grade. He moved, I moved, I had no idea where he was. And I would have never known, he would have never known the rest of the story Were it not many, many years later, one year for my birthday present, my wife hunted down my friend Tom and found him and got him on the phone. Hey, you remember your Mormon friend back in seventh grade, James? He's a Christian now. Did you know that? No. He has a ministry, Watchman Fellowship, reaching out to Mormons and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and atheists. And, and remember that day on your grandmother's porch? God used that. And that you planted a seed that day. And I, I, told, I told Tom, I said, Tom, anything good that ever comes out of the ministry of Watchman Fellowship, you will always have a part of that. You were the one who planted the seed. So is it worth it? Should we try to reach our Latter-day Saint friends? You know, well, you know what I want to be? I want to be a Tom in somebody's life. Now, let me say, I, I know you're thinking, well, James, this is mission impossible. How hard would it be? The, what if they ask me a tough question I don't know the answer to? And, you know, uh, uh, you know I, I don't know how I would go about it. Listen, befriend them. Be their friend. Uh, wait for the opportunity. If, they, if you don't know the answer, tell them you don't know the answer, and then, and then look it up. Try, try to work with them on that. Um, Share, share your story, your testimony with them, what God's done in your life. You say, well, I don't have, the, I don't have all the knowledge. We've got some great tools to help you. Uh, and I'd love for you to take advantage of the tools. I believe in the tools. But let me tell you, it's, it's, to be honest, it's really not so much about the tools. I, I like them. I think they're helpful. Uh, but what did Tom have to work with? My friend in seventh grade. What kind of, He had a Encyclopedia and a King James Bible, that's all he had. So, so let me just ask you this evening, are, are you smarter than a 7th grader? I'll just ask you, are you smarter than a 7th grader? If God can use Tom, he can use me. He can use you, is what I'm saying. I want to encourage you on that. It's not about how much you know. In fact, sometimes nobody even wants to know how much you know until they know how much you care. Build that relationship, be that kind of friend. Before I close in prayer, I did want to mention some of those tools, some of those resources that we have for you. Uh, One of them is our free profile. We have a form back there that you can print your name and address, or you can go to our website. It's free, and it's uh, watchman.org. Every other month, we'd love to get you. We have one coming out right now on agnosticism. That's our next profile. We also have the book I mentioned this morning, The Concise Guide to Today's Religions and Spirituality. Uh, We have a way of getting the book free as well. Uh, with our DVD set. We have the four DVDs, one on uh, Islam, the Muslim debate, uh, one on Jehovah's Witnesses, one on the marks of a cult, and then we have, we'll talk about this in a minute, we do have the two-hour debate that I did with Elder Joseph Evans. Joe's a friend of mine. He's the head of the Mormon Church Seminary Program for North Texas. And Before I pray, if we have time, I know I'm getting late, but I've got like about a three or four minute. Would you like to see a little four, three or four minute little excerpt of what that debate was like? Get to meet my friend Joe. Let's watch this video.
1: I keep mentioning, members, uh, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the name of our church. We believe that if a person says, I believe, and their actions don't coordinate with that behavior, that it's not true. The devils also believe and they tremble.
0: But let me just say this, the whole time I was a Latter-day Saint, I never had an assurance that my sins had been forgiven
1: I don't believe for one second. Trust me, and I feel the truthfulness in your heart. I do not believe anything I do saves me. But as a Latter-day Saint, I I think I understood correctly what I was being taught. So a young 14-year-old boy went into the, the grove and he got on his knees and he prayed. And he received a visitation from our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. I believe that's true. I was also clearly
0: taught in the scriptures, by the writings of the apostles, prophets, general authorities, that what Christ did on the cross was not sufficient to save me.
1: Do I just feel like this massive weight? Oh, I can't be perfect. No. Do you know why? Because I do what it's told. I read the scriptures every day. And I, and I get on my knees every morning and night. Nobody in the Mormon church who's doing those things is feeling that weight and is feeling, like, oh, I just can't do it. He wasn't saying that Baptists are bad, the Protestant. He was saying that Joseph Smith was going around having all these people tell him, you join our church, you're going to hell. And I can see for myself
0: that the Bible has been translated correctly. I can have confidence in the Bible. Now, As I mentioned earlier, the Book of Mormon, uh, or rather the Pearl of Great Price Book of Abraham, uh, we can demonstrate, demonstrable, that not Joseph Smith didn't get one word right. For example, Joseph Smith took one Egyptian character that looks like three wavy lines, Joseph Smith translated that one Egyptian character into some 70 plus words with eight or nine proper nouns, one word, one symbol. Now, the Egyptologists tell us that that symbol means water or pool of water. Joseph Smith gets a a chunk of chapter one of the book of Abraham from that one symbol.
1: And I just want to first say that everything that, that, that James said is logical and reasonable. So I think it's ironic that, that Joseph Smith, the same one
0: who's telling us the Bible's not translated correctly, apparently did not get one word right in his
1: whole translation. I can take all those points, don't worry about them. Worry about what's in your heart. And I could catch in the corner of my eye, and he's rapidly writing down, he's gonna gotta come up and give it. and he has the benefit of being after, which is awesome in this kind of situation. But. <laughs> And you know what, if you could open up two brains and get, okay, this is what's actually happening and then this is what it is, you're gonna to get to something different. I've been married 11 years and one thing I know for certain is that what I say and what my wife hears isn't always exactly the same. <laughs> and the reason comes from God and our ability
0: to reason. Uh, the Mormons say the glory of God is intelligence. I think there's a lot of truth to that. So I don't wanna be unreasonable. I don't wanna be anti-reason in my faith. Reason alone, however, is not inerrant. It will never get you a full revelation of God. And the heart too, the Bible says the heart's deceitful. Who can know it? That gives you a taste of that. One of the great things about this we discovered after we did the debate is most of the time Latter-day Saints would not look at a Christian DVD about their church because they say it's too biased. It's only your side of the story. But they're often willing to watch because it's both sides. It's equally timed. And sometimes you can get a Latter-day Saint to review it for you just to see if they agree with the Mormon. I'm not even asking them to agree with me. Do you agree with what uh elder Evans says about the gospel and it makes a great conversation piece so if you look on the back of your of your chart you'll see the list of of those resources and the, the the offer that we're making on that as well and uh you can take advantage of that as you want but i just want to lead us in prayer and you just got an idea how many of you know a latter-day saint I have a mormon friend family member co-worker student at school how many raise your hand if you have a latter-day saint that you could tell me the name Let, let's just pray for our Mormon neighbors and friends. Father, we wanna thank you uh, that you've given us an opportunity to know Latter-day Saints and to be able to um, potentially have the opportunity to share our faith with them. Help us, Lord, to, to do so with compassion, uh, to do so with patience, uh, to build a relationship. Uh, I know that some of uh, some of the best people I've known and got to meet uh, have been Latter-day Saints. And, Uh, Help help our other friends here this evening, our Christian friends, to be able to have that joy of knowing Latter-day Saints and Mormons. But use it also as an opportunity for us to exchange ideas and to be able to discuss the gospel of Jesus Christ and the differences between a salvation by obedience to laws and ordinances and a salvation by grace through faith alone. Uh, Use us now. We ask your Holy Spirit to be convicting the, the, the hands that went up, those names, those individuals. You know who they are. You know their hearts, and we ask you to convict them. Your Holy Spirit be convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then use us. Uh, We ask you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.